You are traveling on Tolkien's Road, the only podcast broadcast under the hill, over the hill, and across the water. I am your host, Jim Seals, and with me is my co-host, a man who needs no introduction, but if you hold a quarter of what I have hold about him, you would be prepared for any sort of remarkable tale, Jason Tondro. <laughs> hi, hi, James. <laughs> so, um, welcome everybody uh, to Tolkien's Road. Uh, I'm Jason, as uh, James introduced, and and uh, what I thought we would, we would do is um, tell you a little bit about who we are and what we're going to do here for not just the next uh, hour or two uh, today, but rather for a very long time in the future. A very long time. A very long time. <laughs> I actually, actually mapped it all out. Yeah. The Hobbit. Yeah. Um, just for fear of being overwhelmed. Yeah. Well, so let's start off by talking about how this, what this project is and how we started. And, and that's, the idea is pretty straightforward. We, we want to walk through all of Tolkien's writings, starting with The Hobbit and certainly Lord of the Rings, uh, sort of one chapter at a time, um, talking about the book itself, the text, and and what we get out of it, and what we see in it, and kind of just enjoy the book. Uh, in a way, we're rereading it, but we're also doing a lot more than that, and kind of unpacking it a little bit at a time. And I want to start off by saying that this is all James's fault. Uh, that yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's entirely James's fault, because tell me how you first got this idea for this project. Well, I was actually, uh, for the most part, uh, my love of, of Tolkien is, is relatively new in my life, uh, in the last five years or so. Um, until that, up, up until that point, I was mostly a science fiction fan. But in the last five years, I've, I've really delved into fantasy uh, pretty hardcore, and on my Facebook page, I was writing up uh, my impressions of uh, Tolkien, you know, a chapter at a time, uh, and it was drawing to a conclusion. Yeah, I, I was coming to the end of Lord of the Rings, and I didn't want to leave Middle Earth. I didn't want to leave, you know, it, it's it's full full of. You know, for a lot of people, this this place feels like home, and it, it felt very much like home for me, and I didn't want to put that behind me. So I sent you a message, and I asked, you know, are there any Tolkien podcasts? And you said, I'm sure they're all, but we should do one. <laughs> yeah. Well, any excuse to do something with you is usually enormous fun. So. Oh, well, now you have me blushing. That's true. And, and, uh, and and you've done these sort of um, chapter by chapter conversations. You've done quite a lot of them. You've you you used, you were writing up sort of episode by episode impressions of various Star Treks, and you've done Babylon Five, and you've done a bunch of other projects like that. Yeah, I I, I find that I uh, prefer long form fiction. Yeah, uh, you know it, it comes from my love of comic books and serialized media. Um, and really trying to understand what the point is. Yeah. yeah. And really understand like what the creators are trying to say and what we can take from it, you know, sometimes decades and decades after it's been made. Um, and whether, you know, whether it's still relevant. And for me, uh, 
Tolkien's very much relevant. I feel that when I actually sit down and read anything he writes. Yeah. As a, like a human being, I feel better. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. And I don't think I'm the only one on that 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 front. Yeah. Well, my my first encounter with Tolkien was as a boy. Uh, my dad got me reading The Hobbit. I I believe it was The Hobbit first. But it's been so long ago, I really don't remember. I read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings when I was a child. And uh, and my dad loved these books. And he had a... He, he made me a belt buckle that said Bilbo on it. He was a hand, handyman kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And, and he had his own belt buckle that said Ent on it. Because, of course, I was about three feet high and he was about 20, at least as far as I could tell, right? Uh and and I I was probably too young to understand the books. Famously, one, the first of my many Tolkien confessions. When I read The Lord of the Rings, I thought Mary was a girl <laughs> mm-hmm. because Mary is a girl's name. <laughs> I mean, everybody knows Mary is a girl's name. I couldn't figure out why they kept referring to Mary as a he. When, I mean, it must be a typo, <laughs> like a thousand times in this book. Anyway, <laughs> so I, I I was not the best reader of Tolkien when I was young, but it created a deep love of these books in me. And um, and then years later, we we met at uh, Riverside Community College in Southern California, right? Yes. And you've been there. How long have you been there for? Um, I started as a student since 2001 and started as an employee around 2002. And so now, and, so, yeah, go ahead. And I, I've had various jobs at that institution. Yeah, but now you run the writing center there. And for those of you that are out there listening, if you're a college student, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you're not a college student, most every college now uh, has a place on campus where students who are working on papers uh, or just need writing advice and writing help from professors or part-time writing tutors can go and they go to this place. There's usually filled with computers and some writing tutors and, um, and they, they can get one-on-one help there. And that's, that's where you work, right? You, you keep the trains running on time. Yeah. I make sure that, uh, you know, people are paid, uh, the lab is, uh, open and, you know, I try to take care of all the student problems before they become problems. Right. To right. various degrees of success. And just to say that. And it was at RCC that I first got to teach Tolkien. Uh, I'm I'm an English professor, and I was working on my. Uh, I had just finished actually finished my PhD in English, and I was adjuncting, which is a fancy word for teaching part time, at various schools. Uh, in the Southern California area, and and one of them was RCC, and RCC had a very hands-off sort of policy when it came to the professors picking the books that they wanted to use in the classroom. And so when I'm teaching uh, 102, English 102, which is the second semester of basic composition, freshman composition, that class also has a sort of introduction to literature aspect to it. That is, we're not only practicing how to write, we're also writing about literature. And so as the professor for that class, I got to pick whatever literature I wanted everyone to read. 
And so I structured the class around fantasy uh, lit, and we read a bunch of fantasy, historical and recent. We read Beowulf, for instance, and Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, and some H.P. Lovecraft, some of his dream, uh, dream quest of unknown Kadath, uh, and so on. But we also read Lord of the Rings throughout the entire book, uh, throughout the entire semester we spent on this book. And, and that was where I kind of really got back in touch with Tolkien, between that and Lord of the Rings Online, which I know, James, you've also played. Yes, I uh, actually just downloaded the client back on my Apple uh, computer last night. Does it have a, it has a Mac version? Yes, it has a Mac version. Oh, see, well, no. And, we, we, it, it, looks, it looks exactly like it did. Exactly um, like it did. I only played the maybe 20 minutes last night after I downloaded it. Do, uh, do you still have, what was that guy that you made? Was he a champion? What, he's a guardian? Uh, and when he was a, a dwarven guardian named Hogan, I believe. Hogan, that's right. Um, I don't think I still have him because I'm on the, the Apple, and I don't remember what Silver we were playing on. Oh. So I didn't have him. Uh, but I didn't see him last night, so I, I rolled a, uh, a little hobbit. <laughs> nice. And was running around bag end for a little bit. So I, I did a bunch of writing on Lord of the Rings when I was playing Lord of the Rings Online. Um, I did a, a, a column, a regular blog, called The Long Defeat. And uh, and I had a lot of fun writing about Tolkien regularly uh, in that sense. And so when you suggested looking for a podcast, Tolkien podcast, I thought, well, that would be a great. I would love to get back into Middle Earth as well. And uh, and that's that's sort of how we got here. And then at the same time, the films were coming out. The the Hobbit films were coming out. Yeah, the, the, I think uh, the first uh, attempt that we had at this at this go around, the first film had just released. And was new. Um, and there was a lot of, at least on my end, there was a lot of excitement that yeah. died down a slow, long defeat of its own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because now, coming where we're recording from this now, the third uh, Hobbit film has come out, came out last month, and kind of to a general, a general sense of disappointment on part of virtually everyone. Uh, I remember when Return of the King came out, the third Peter Jackson film. And that film won, like, Best Picture or something. It, it, it was nominated for virtually every award they had a name for. Mm-hmm. Well, it captured, it really captured the zeitgeist at that point. Yeah, it did. And plus, you know, the three films were all so great but he's not going to win for every one of them. And so they kind of all built up and do an unstoppable juggernaut so that he won uh, best director. I think I, I can't remember now which, which awards they won for that, but quite a few of them. And it was really for the entire trilogy rather than just for that one single film, because they'd all been filmed together. Now here we are, the Oscars have just been announced for this upcoming year. And I think that the Hobbit was nominated for costuming and sound design or something ridiculous, you know, yeah, it's it's the basic uh, awards that they mention for any sort of uh, genre type fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, it's the the best CGI, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Certainly, no one is suggesting that uh, that the Hobbit trilogy needs to be nominated for best picture. Well, anyway, so this has given us some maybe useful perspective, uh, so that we can spend more time talking about the books and less time talking about uh, what we hope 
the films will be um, mm-hmm. and ended up not actually getting. Yeah. The, 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 I'm sure that we, you know, I, I say that I don't want to spend time talking about the movies, but I'm sure that at some point, you know, we're going to go and, and, and draw a sharp comparison because those comparisons should be made. Yeah. Because we have to consider what Tolkien is, who Tolkien is writing for and what those That's Peter right. Jackson films are Gale Towards doing. That's right. And, and that it doesn't really overlap in terms of the Venn diagram. Yeah, and, and, and this is a question that Tolkien himself dealt with while he was alive. I mean, while he was alive, people were trying to make movies, whether they were animated or, or live action. They were trying to make films based on his books. And, and this is an ongoing conversation that he dealt with all the time. <laughs> So, uh, and, and we have, thanks to his letters, we have some of his actual comments and feedback on, on these questions. The most famous example being the famous Eagles question, where someone says, well, why can't they just ride the Eagles everywhere? And I he, hate that question. I know, I know, I know. And, I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the funny thing is that this question is almost as old as The Hobbit. Uh, from w- one of the first attempts to make an animated movie based on The Hobbit, that was one of the changes that the screenwriters made. They made the hobbits, they made the dwarves and the hobbit ride, ride the eagles everywhere. And Tolkien was outraged. And, and so this is a very old debate. Uh, and, uh, and it continues to pop back up. I think the last time I saw it was, was last, a couple of months ago when someone suggested that when Gandalf fell uh, in the, middle of Fellowship of the Ring. Spoilers. Spoilers for a book that we haven't got to yet. Uh, <laughs> that when, when, when Gandalf falls down the pit in Casa Doom and he says, fly, you fools, he was actually telling them to ride the eagles. Uh, it was one of those fan theories, you know, that we that we love so much these days. Yeah, no, uh, I, I get that. I get it about uh, once every few months uh, when Misty decides she wants to, to poke the bail. <laughs> Misty, and she should... knows that those those one or two things that she can go to, and and that's that's <laughs> definitely in my top story. Misty, you should be ashamed of yourself. Oh. <laughs> All right. Um. Okay. So so, I think our next step is to get into um kind of the nature of the book and how it was written. We won't do this every time, but this is our first episode, and so it's worth maybe giving a little bit of introduction to the book itself and kind of its historical context. James, is there anything you wanted to start with? Well, uh, I actually wanted to start with the author's uh, note. Yeah. And mainly, what are those runes saying? (laughs) Okay, so um, first, let's talk a little bit about the texts, because there are many different versions of The Hobbit. And and depending on which version you have downloaded for free from the internet, because I know you, whoever you are, when you're listening, whatever, whatever version you have in front of you, it's worth noting that Tolkien continued to revise this book throughout his life, sometimes in very minor ways, sometimes in very major ways. And in fact, in 1960, he started to rewrite uh, the first several chapters of The Hobbit from scratch. He never finished, and those rewrites never got inserted into the book. Uh, And we'll talk about why he would try to rewrite the beginning chapters uh, in a bit, but the the version that you're looking at has an author's note 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, my version of the book, and I'm going to go back to it many times during the course of our conversation, so I just want to get it out of the way. I am using The Annotated Hobbit, uh, annotated by Douglas A. Anderson. And this is just a magnificent book. I cannot tell you how valuable this book is to us. Um, it makes us look so much smaller. It you. does. It makes us look so smart. Revised and expanded edition annotated by Douglas A. Anderson. And this is a green hardback. And what it does is it provides all kinds. It provides, for example, in this case, all changes made to the book by Tolkien in the various editions of the book. All right. So you're looking at the author's note. Um, and uh, suddenly I can't find it. Here we go. Okay, so the runes at the top of the page, Tolkien had a deep love of languages and secret code. As a child, he would create foreign languages uh, and, and then use them to communicate with his relatives. Would he, would he tell people to drink the Ovaltine? <laughs> to, to what? Oh, drink the Ovaltine. No, um, he, I believe his first language that he invented was called animalism. Or animal, mm-hmm. uh, if I had that right, uh, it, it was it, it was a language that he invented for his um, his close relatives. But the reason why I bring this up is because he liked to create foreign language and then and then get the reader to decipher it because he wanted them to feel that thrill of finding a secret hidden meaning in something. And so, in this um, initial author's note. You can see he actually encourages you to do exactly this. Um, he, he says uh, that you can figure out what these words at the top of the page mean if you, if you bother to go through the trouble. Uh, yeah, if the runes on Thor's map are compared with the transcriptions into modern letters, and he gives you the page numbers where those letters are found, the alphabet yes. adapted to modern English can be discovered and the above runic title, that is the title on this page, also read. So he's, he's telling you, hey, you can figure out what that means. Well, it just means the Hobbit. It just says the Hobbit at the top there in, mm-hmm. in dwarvish runes. Uh, or there and back again. Uh, is all that that means. And and at first, it'll we may not recognize how it can say that because the, there are not the right number of runes. But we have to remember that in some of these runes, some of these runes actually count as two letters. They count as a sound. So, for example, the hobbit, the first rune is a TH rune, the. So you only need one rune to take two letters, you see? So, yeah, that's so that's, that's what that says. And that was introduced, this whole introduction, the, uh, uh, the authorial note, was added, um, not, was not in the original publication of the book. It was, it was added in uh, 1951. So if you, if you look at the, um, the map of the Lonely Mountain, there are runes on it, and they talk about uh, Thrain. Thrain. And they say... Now I have to find the map and what exactly it says. Uh, 
they talk about uh, about Thrain founding the kingdom under the mountain. Well, this was this confused many people because uh, Thorin Oakenshield, his father is named Thrain. Well, that Thrain couldn't possibly have founded the kingdom under the mountain because they've been there for centuries. Yeah, I believe he he had a uh, he had a uh, when during the exposition scene, I believe Thorin yeah. calls him Thrain of old. Yeah, uh, yeah, and 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 Thrain the old was clarified. That name was clarified, and this whole introductory author's note was added basically to address that specific perceived inconsistency. And that's when we got this authorial note. This, the Hobbit. This is a very interesting book for me to read because Tolkien did not finish The Hobbit and publish it until he was 46 years old. And he didn't publish The Lord of the Rings until he was in his 60s. Gives us hope. It, exactly. I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I happen to be 46 right now. And... And it's very easy when you're busy working on your life, you know, you're just sort of doing your job and you look back one day and it's your birthday or something and you look back and you think, what have I accomplished, you know? And you think about all these people that are become superstars when they're 20. You know, yeah. sometimes it doesn't happen like that. So sometimes the best stuff you put out is the stuff that comes later on in your life. And Tolkien understood this. He, he, he was not misled by the attractiveness of youth. And he'll often talk about the reverence he has for the aged and, and, uh, and how much age makes us, in many ways, stronger. Not weaker, but stronger. This is part of the reason why these books are different to read now than they were when we read them as children. You know, when we're, when we're 12, when we're reading The Hobbit for the first time, or even when we're 20 and reading this book, it doesn't say the same things to us as it does when we're 40 or 50 or 60. So there's a, there's a lot to be said for coming back to these books in, in time. Yeah. An old man could not have, uh, a young man, I should say, would not have written these books. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and to talk about, uh, about this, uh, another issue, um, Tolkien didn't finish The Hobbit. He wrote it. And he handed it around to C.S. Lewis and his other friends at Oxford and to some of his grad students, for example. But he, he didn't finish it. It, it ended, um, I have to remember where exactly. It, it, the, the whole business about Bilbo sneaking into the, to, to the Smaug's lair, none of that had been written, including the whole end. And, uh, and he did not finish it until one of his grad students had read it and she was approached by a book publisher who wanted her to write a uh, a, mod a a better translation of Beowulf and she couldn't do it but what she did end up saying was oh while I while you're here you should really read professor Tolkien's book i think it's really great and this um this book agent 
came to him later. And he didn't finish this book until he had a financial motivation. Tolkien finished things when he thought that he could publish them. And that was the reason why he finished things. Otherwise, he had, he had a million projects all going on at once, and he would work on a little one here and a little bit there, and, and they would never really get, he would never really be happy with them. But when he saw that he could get a check for them, so now his focus sharpened to a point. And, and then he finished the book. But he would never really be happy with it, and he would continue to make revisions throughout his life. You know, when, when, we, when we heard about George Lucas making changes to Star Wars, we thought that was the craziest thing in the world. How could you ever go back and change a movie after you've already made it? Okay, Tolkien was doing this before George Lucas was even born. Uh, he was making changes to The Hobbit. Not that we are defending. <laughs> <laughs> uh, shall we say Gollum shoots first? Is that should be our next? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. But all I'm trying to get at is is that um, Tolkien was incredibly picky, and and he can he considered the books to be living documents that were in a state of perpetual revision. And and there's definitely a, a narrow perfectionism. Oh yeah. To, to some of these revisions. Now, I've actually opted not to read The Annotated Hobbit. Oh, okay. Well, the purposes of the podcast. I have it. It's a very <laughs> lovely book. I skimmed through it. Um, but for me, I enjoy you educating me, Jason. Oh, no. <laughs> Translation to all of you. I enjoy the consistent reading experience of going, okay, what is it that I am getting out of the book? James has decided to let me sound smart. <laughs> it's not that, that's not difficult to do, my <laughs> All right. So um so that's kind of a little bit about the kind of where the book uh was and how he how it was created. Most everybody knows the origin myth behind uh the Hobbit. Tolkien did have a large family, and although he was a professor at Oxford, he had bills, and he was not he was not in a position of wealth. They always had to keep close track of money. And, and so over summer, he would earn extra money by grading exams. And people would write in exam booklets. The students would write in exam booklets. And he was grading an exam booklet one day, and someone left a, a, a leaf of the book blank the front and back of one page. And Tolkien wrote later, this is the best thing that could happen to a test reader because that meant they didn't, they didn't have to read two pages because everybody else fills up the book. You know, they write to the very last end. Yeah. So now I've got two pages that's empty and I don't have to read them. And he says, I almost gave the guy five points just for not filling the entire book. <laughs> uh, but instead he wrote on the top of the page, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And he didn't know what a hobbit was, and he didn't know what that hobbit story was, but that was the beginning of the story. And we have about six pages of the original handwritten hobbit, which have been preserved in Tolkien's papers, which were finally donated uh, during his life uh, to Marquette University, and then more were added after his death. 
that that's where his official holdings are. So any of you that live near Marquette, walk yourself down to the university and beg, borrow, or wheedle your way into that collection and, uh, and give us a report. Uh, and so he, he had written the story and he told it in pieces to his children which will impact the story in many significant ways, which we'll uncover as we read. Um, but he, and he wrote it up, he typed it up, but he never finished it. And he would read it, pieces of it, or he would circulate it amongst his friends. And it wasn't until it got discovered by a book publisher that he decided to finish it. And then it finally came out. There were some delays, but, and, and they spent, um, Tyler Unwin was his publisher in England. Uh, Unwin spent a great deal of effort and time working with Tolkien to edit and proofread the book. And finally it came out in 1937. Sold pretty well. Went into a second and third print run. And then, oh, it got American licensed. So it was licensed with Houghton Mifflin here in America. And... It was doing well. It was the most, it was the number one book that Unwin was marketing for children at the time. When they would put out big ads for their collections, they would put The Hobbit on the, on the front, on the top. It was the big book that they were pushing for the year. And then World War II came. And everybody had something more important to do than read children's books. And paper shortages hit. And Unwin's warehouse was bombed and thousands of pages of paper went up in smoke. And so no one had really, no one really remembered the book and it kind of vanished until after the war when it was slowly rediscovered. And, and then the claim, the clamoring began for a sequel and then it took, took Tolkien many years to finally put out that sequel. Now this 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 connection to World War Two I find interesting being yeah. a, a history buff. Yeah. Um, especially considering that World War One is so defining of Tolkien's writing. Yeah, that's right. Um, the ending of the book, you know, when Bilbo returns home. Yes. Yes. For the end, um, life has moved on. That's right. You know. Life continues after, you know, while you're having the venture. Like, yeah. no one's stagnant. And he has to deal with the ramifications of being gone for 16-some-odd months. That's right. How long he's gone. And I can't help but think that that was very much him returning home from that, that battlefield and seeing his home in a different place than it was now. Yeah. You know, then yeah. he recalls it in his memory. Yeah. And I'll, I'll probably be, be coming back to this uh, World War One concept quite a bit as we're reading along, especially when we get to Lord of the Rings and we get to the areas like the Dead Marshes. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, which just, it just entirely feels emblematic of uh, the imagery and sort of the daily life of what those soldiers were dealing with in no man's land. Now, you brought up the, the point of uh, calling it a children's book. Yes. Um, I took a children's literature class yeah. uh, last semester, 
And there was some debate as to whether or not The Hobbit was considered a children's book. Oh, neat. Good. Tell us. Um, well, mainly... The, 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 the book itself, uh, the, the textbook that we used, which I do not have on hand at the moment, uh, and if the, uh, if the instructor of the class is listening to this podcast, it's probably writing me an email as we speak. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the contention of the authors from that uh, textbook was that it was not a children's book uh, on the basis of there was a long-standing tradition of books being written and then taken and consumed as children's literature sort of after the fact. Um, so uh, Treasure Island. Yeah. By the author's definition, it wasn't necessarily written for a child audience in mind. Therefore, it was it was only brought into the canon of children's literature sort of after the fact. Well, but it's not actually guilds of speaking tones, kids, and well, the needs of children. That's really interesting because, as we'll see in the book, Tolkien himself actually acknowledged this was his biggest problem with The Hobbit. That is, he wrote it too much, obviously, for children. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are parts of the book, especially in the early chapters, in which Tolkien directly addresses the reader as a child and says things to them like, well, you'll learn more about this when you're older, or you're too young for this, that kind of patronizing attitude. And he would later acknowledge that that's the worst thing a child reader wants is to be treated like a child, to be spoken to like a child. And and this is why he wanted to rewrite the first few chapters. This is why in 1960 he went back and started to do a rewrite, because he wanted to cut out that parental voice, if you will, that, that adult voice speaking to a child which he ended up growing out of in the book. By the time that we get to, like, chapter five, it's gone. All those things, oh, that, he, all those things that he says, I'm not going to tell you about because it'll scare you. He tells you. But it took him a few chapters to realize that he should do that. And, and so you can see these kind of bumps in the first few chapters of the book. I, I, so I find that very interesting because he seems to, he directly addresses children in this book. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was a a uh, a lively discussion. <laughs> Good. I brought that up. Uh, yeah. I very much brought that up, and uh, the, the concept that you know the, the reason giant spiders exist in this universe, yeah, is the sole purpose of scaring his children. That's right. You know? Who is afraid of spiders? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So. There was that aspect of it, but the 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 problem I had with with the the making the argument was that uh, at some point in his life, uh, I believe to New York Times, he gives an interview saying that no, The Hobbit is not meant to be a children's book. Oh, interesting. Um, and I I actually had to sit down and, and read that interview while I was making my case. <laughs> um, because he he really does it sort of lament that pole style that you mentioned in yeah. this in this uh, piece. Yeah, I think right. it was sometime in the sixties. Uh, so it's it's fairly damning to be making a case that no, it's a children's book, and then the author of the book's like, no, it's not a children's book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know he he uses that that sort of uh, parental digression yeah. very early on in terms of. 
when he's introducing the very concept of a hobbit, he, you know, the, the line in, you know, on page one is the mother of all particular hobbits. What is a hobbit? Yeah. As if the child had spoken up. Right, right. As if he's answering an unanswered, you know, unasked question that yeah. probably would have been asked by a kid if you were reading this book out loud. Right. At that point. And then he gives that sort of digression as to explaining what hobbits are like. Yeah. Uh, well, that's an interesting debate. I the the book, the first award that the Hobbit ever won was a literary prize awarded in America, and there were two categories: one for children's, one for young readers, and one for not so young readers. Mm-hmm. And the Hobbit won the young readers award. The other one went to a book that was set in a in a school, uh, set in a uh, like a high school sort of. Co- uh, young college age. And so there's a famous story about how the 50 pound prize money showed up uh, on the kitchen table in the mail. And he opened up the letter and probably handed the check over to his wife so that she could pay a doctor's bill with it. Uh, But I certainly in, in our era, this book doesn't seem like a children's book because, quite frankly, it's very difficult. I think it's hard for young readers. It was probably too hard for me when I started to read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, I'll, I'll, I'll make a... This is, we're skipping ahead a little bit, but this is in Chapter 2, where Tolkien talks about this exact, um, this exact point. When uh, the trolls have been eating, and uh, he he addresses the reader directly. The Hobbit. Later on, he talked about it. The Hobbit was written in what I should now regard as bad style, as if one were talking to children. There's nothing my children loathed more. They taught me a lesson. Anything that in any way marked out the Hobbit as for children instead of just for people, they disliked instinctively. I did too, now I think about it. All this, I won't tell you anymore, you think about it stuff. Oh no, they loathe it, it's awful. Children aren't a class, they are merely human beings at differing stages of maturity. Well, anyway, so I think that it's clear from that at least that he imagined it as a children's book. Although I'm not surprised now that you mentioned it that he later on said it's not. uh, Because Tolkien would often say quite ridiculous things about his own book sometimes. Um, remind me when we get to Lord of the Rings to talk about how he insisted that that book was not allegorical. Yeah, it's it's, it's very difficult. <laughs> I, I, I've pulled that case several times. Yeah. Very wounded people who know a lot more than I do, and it's it's extraordinarily difficult not to to draw lines in the sand. Yeah. Certain elements of it. Well, okay, so we we better get to the book, or we're never going to get on this thing. Okay, so wow. <laughs> Where should we where should we start with chapter one? Yes. Well, let's, let's start at the beginning. Uh, I suppose a, a quick synopsis wouldn't be out sure. of order. Sure. Um, the book opens on a Tuesday <laughs> with uh, Bilbo outside of Bag End. Bilbo, the main character, he is a hobbit, uh, fifty years of age. Hobbits are small creatures, um, with the uh, long, clever brown fingers and. And uh, I'll get to the, the 
use of Cullo in the book in a, in a second, oh, especially yeah, in chapter one. Good, good. But uh, he encounters a wizard named Gandalf who insists that he'll go on an adventure, that it will be good for him. And suddenly he invites him to tea and can't believe that he invited him for tea. And on Wednesday, the following day, at around tea time, dwarves start showing up. Nothing wrong with them. At the end of which, Gandalf appeals, and Bilbo is conscripted into going on an eventual. The Turkish side of him comes out uh, when when he feels that he is being uh, belittled, and he makes agreements that he, in later life, possibly regrets. Yeah. And that's sort of where the the chapter ends. And and there's already a couple of really neat elements here, themes that are going to come back in the book later on. One of them is, you, you talked about how um, his Tookish side comes through when he feels like his dignity is being insulted. Um, mm. the, the, the theme of pride is going to come back again and again in this book. Uh, because when we first meet um, Thorin, Thorin Oakenshield, and uh, and even though we've already disparaged the films, uh, just, it's hard for me because the films have been such a huge presence for the last couple of years to not yeah. imagine Thorin looking like the guy that played Thorin in the movie. And now I can't believe I've forgotten his name. Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't remember the actor's name. And, and I want to think of you know Martin Freeman playing Bilbo, even though Freeman has mentioned that he never read these books until the movie. And he, he wasn't particularly a Tolkien fan until the movies. Um, but, but yeah, so I sort of imagined that way. But um, Thorin is described immediately as being very proud, and it's his dignity that gets, kind of gets in the way of him when he's dealing with other people. And, and Bilbo, of course, is very humble, and, and yet it's his dignity, his pride, that ends up force prompting him to stand up for himself and to say, well, I don't know why you're here, and I don't know what you think I can do, and I think you found the wrong door, but let's just say that you found the right door. Let's just pretend that you're supposed to be here. You're not, but let's pretend that you are. And, <laughs> and, and I'll do whatever it is that you thought the guy who lived here was going to do for you. Uh, and I, I think that we're going to... We should keep our eyes out, I think, for more examples of pride and dignity and and how it can be useful and how it can also be a hindrance yes when we are all introduced to thorn to to get back to him yeah you know the last belong to thorn and those he just finished describing the huts yeah and uh thorn's hood unlike all of the others is described as sky blue with a long silver tassel <laughs> right none of the other hoods have an adornment yeah and he goes, this last belonged to Thorn, an enormously important dwarf. In fact, no other than the great Thorn Oakenshield himself. Thorn indeed was very haughty and said nothing about souls. Yeah, there's this, um, there's this ritual in which, uh, which is uh, the, the dwarven greeting ritual is when you, you say, at your service, um, Philly and Killy, at your service. And the other person is supposed to say their name and at yours and your family's. Uh, and there's a point where Bilbo finally remembers to say this, and but Thorin is not going to say anything about service. He would never serve anyone. And we're going to come back, we're going to see this question of service come up 
Well, especially when we get to Sam. Yes. Uh, oh, Sam. Yo, Sam. <laughs> I originally pitched this podcast as the Samwise Gamgee is awesome podcast. <laughs> We should probably expand our horizons. Yeah, yeah. Samwise Gamgee is awesome. Well, you're not wrong. Uh, but certainly Tolkien, who was a devout Catholic, a man of great faith, personal faith, saw no shame in service. In fact, service was dignifying. It was ennobling to serve. Um. And, you know, why should we, why should a good servant, why should someone who's a servant and who does that job very, very well, why should that man be regarded less than a king who does his job very poorly? And what was, there, was, there was a line in uh, Lord of the Rings about how Sauron has uh, no servants but slaves. Yeah, many I, slaves but no servants. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so the theme of pride and dignity. And then there's also another thing that I could not help but notice as we were reading through this book, and that is how often Tolkien makes the point that this is our world just a very long time ago. Mm-hmm. I know this is a, something that uh, we debate a lot if you're a real Tolkien nerd, you know, like, is Middle Earth our Earth or not? And we know this story because Tolkien... Uh, has what he calls a lost manuscript method of writing, which is that he, the writings of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, all the writings of the Legendarium, which is what he called all of his writings on Middle-earth, all of the Legendarium is supposed to be a surviving copies of a manuscript that dates from a very, very long time ago. And so the book actually exists. And this is very convenient because it means that Tolkien is not wrong in the sense that he wrote something, he invented something that doesn't make sense. Rather, the translation is the problem. <laughs> uh, it's the, rather that the, the original book has no inconsistencies in it. It's just that we haven't quite figured out how to translate it properly. Or maybe we made a miscopy. And for a guy who spent his whole life studying medieval literature, this makes perfect sense. And, and from that conceit, he creates a sense of intertextuality within his own work. Go on. Tell me what you mean. Well, uh, my friend uh, Brie Lafon, my yeah. uh, friend and roommate, she's an instructor. And her uh, focus uh, of literature is on text that comments on other texts. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, so one of the books I'm, I'm currently reading is uh, House of Leaves. Okay. Have you heard of this book? No. Is a, a massive tome of a book, <laughs> uh, and it is a found manuscript that has been rewritten and revised by various people with different voices. I see. And you, you, in order to properly read this book, and it's it's basically a, uh, a whole story. Okay. But in order to read this book, you have to flip to appendices at yeah. certain times. You have to read the footnotes, and the footnote can be a whole another little short story within it. Yeah. Yeah, and all of it's sort of commenting on how academic texts are structural. Yeah, um, and that the, one of the reasons why I decided not to read the annotated Hobbit was yeah. I did not want the same reading experience. Yeah. of 
stopping and then reading this bit and then going back and continuing again. Yeah. That's very much what House of Leaves is. And Tolkien, and, yeah, Tolkien pushes all of that stuff hmm. into the appendix in Lord yes. of the Rings. Where he talks about the book itself and kind of translator notes and things like that. And and, and by doing that, he's sort of creating a, a, a fictional version of that. Yeah. That I quite enjoy and respond to. Yeah. Because uh, it does give it a little bit more of a weight. Like, this place is real. Yes. We just, you know, we just lost directions on the map to get there. Yeah, right. Uh, Unless you take us to New Zealand, and then you can apparently walk. From, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. In a couple of weeks. Or, or how did how did somebody put it? Like, now, now you can go, uh, you can watch the latest Hobbit movie and see all of New Zealand's best to green screen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tolkien referred to his work as a sub-creation because it was very important for him to note that we already live in a creation. We are in a created world. And, of course, Tolkien's talking about God. And, and therefore, anything that we, that we create is a sub-creation, is a creation within the creation. Uh, we'll see more uh, about that later on as we as we go. What else in well, the first chapter should we touch on? Well, one of the things uh, I really saw latching on to, and I, I read this book uh, uh, maybe five or six times in, sure. in the last five years. Sure. Um, and sometimes I'll just grab a couple of chapters and read that for the sake of it. Uh, or I'll do a whole quick rereading of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but each time I, I even open up the book and just read a couple passages, I find something new and different. And this yeah. time, I really got fixated on Tolkien's use of color, especially in chapter one. Good, good. Go on. Um, so as we all understand, you know, from the visual iconography that has been created around uh, uh, Tolkien's waltz, you know, from... How and Jackson and all these yeah, other yeah. aspects that hobbits are very, you know, they're close to the old. Mm-hmm. They have, they are they are dressed in uh, uh, chiefly green and yellows of bright color. Um, their fingers are described as brown. Yeah, their hair is typically brown. Um, and and that was nothing new. That is in my head what you know Bilbo looks like. That's right. But the image of Gandalf in my head yeah. is very much from the Jackson school, which yes. is completely gray. Yeah. Not completely gray. <laughs> That's right. He's described almost like a mountain. Yeah. So oh, his hat good. is blue. Good, yes. Um, and as you descend down him, the Tolkien. <laughs> so his hat is blue. Yeah. And he has he has a white beard and a silver scarf around his, 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 you know, his facial areas. Yeah. Uh, and then you get to the gray cloak. Yeah. And you get to the black boots. Yeah, that's right. That's so right. he's not only is he taller than Bilbo by many, many feet. Yeah. But he's literally described in very much of a mountain sense. Yeah. That's um, interesting. And then I, I took this idea and I was trying to apply it because 
you know, Tolkien doesn't do anything by accident. <laughs> right. So I was trying to take this idea of color in terms of a shorthand for characterization um, and trying to apply it elsewhere, or if I was just barking up a, you know, a wrong tree, which sure. happens sometimes. Well, it's easy to do. When, when we're looking for meaning in everything, it's very easy to get sort of go down a, a, a straight path. But go on. And the the thing that threw me a curveball, and it took me a day to think about. <laughs> okay. Not continue, like I didn't lock myself in a room and just sat there and thought. But well, you know, just going back to this idea. Yeah. The thing that throws me for a uh, cornball in this is that the dwarves all have various color hoods. Yes. And as I'm keeping track of every dwarf okay. uh, as my side project for yes. this podcast, I have already on two chapters, I already have full page document. Okay. On each dwarf. Uh, and one of the things I, I was commenting on was the color of the huts. Now, I uh, thought, I thought, you correct me, I thought that dwarves that were closely related to each other had the same color hoods. Um, that is true in some cases, but not all of them. Okay. So, Feely and Keely both have blue hoods. Okay. Dwaylin has a... Green hood, so described as a dark green hood. Yeah. But his brother Balin has a scarlet hood. Oh, okay. So those those always some variation, and and when you get to the uh, Dory Nori Oi comparisons, they all have they don't all have different hoods, but there was some conjecture as to who has what hood. Oh, right, because so, we don't know. Yeah, okay. Because it's not all definitively stated. Because they all come in a giant group. You know, this is maybe we should, maybe this is a good place for us to point that? out this fallacy that people have about Tolkien that he's somehow incredibly obsessed with minute detail. You, you told me a story once that you were told never to read Tolkien because he'll spend pages describing a chair. Yes. <laughs> that, that, that was one of my first uh, introductions to Tolkien as a child was that from a very credible source that I had from someone who, who I, I quite respected said, yeah. don't read Tolkien, he'll spend pages of reading a chair. Yeah. And I didn't find that interesting. And yet, here we are, trying to figure out what these characters look like and what they're wearing, and, and we don't know, because he never tells us. No. I mean, he gives us some detail. He gives us some detail where he thinks that it's important. But there's much detail that is totally passed over. And it's not just in The Hobbit. It's going to happen in Lord of the Rings, too. But the, the thing I, I took away from Oh, yeah, that, good, go on. I, I got you distracted. Go on. Oh, no, that's, that, that, that's all right. <laughs> but the thing that I, I took away from that is these are all colors. These could be gems under the ground, right? Oh, sure. So the precious jewels... That, that the dwarves are so driven toward. Sure. So I, I, I moved away from the idea of y the use of color in Chapter 1 as a shorthand for characterization mm. as opposed to it being a shorthand for explaining um, sort of where groups of people are coming from. That's interesting. I, I, I'm not sure if that's going to continue through the book, but that was my working hypothesis while I was rereading for the sixth time, an unexpected poem. You know, I remember um, one of the neat things that I picked up when I was reading is this point where um, Thorin is talking about the 
sort of fate of the dwarves since they were run out of Erebor. And he talks about how they've had to become miners, and some of them, and he talks about this is like the worst possible fate for a dwarf, like the thing that they would lower themselves to is to mine coal. Yes. Uh, that's, that's the worst. And, and it's easy to imagine this because basically if you're a dwarf, you know, society is structured in various levels. And, and one of the lower levels is the people who actually dig things out of the ground. I mean, if you're higher in class, you don't dig things out of the ground. You make things out of the things that others have dug out of the ground, right? Yeah. But if you're, if you're on the bottom class of, of dwarven society, you actually dig the stuff up out of the ground. And the stuff that you dig determines your social class and your value. So mm -hmm. the more valuable the stuff, the higher in social class you are. And if you dig out, you know, gold, you're higher than the guys who dig out silver. And if you're diamonds, it's you're above gold and so on. But the absolute most least, the, excuse me, the least valuable thing that they will dig out of the ground is coal. Uh, and, and so I, that's an interesting idea. I, if I was playing with the dwarves, I would, I would make them like, like emeralds or rubies or the different things that they dug out of the ground would be marked off by their hats. Is that kind of what you had in mind? Yeah, that was sort of what I was, what, what I was thinking. So um, now I'm not a, a stonesmith by any stretch of the imagination. Sure. Imagination. So I can't sit there and be like, yes, the dark green is emerald. And <laughs> yeah. Probably yeah. this. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't know any of that either. But I do know that in the medieval period, we had sumptuary laws, which were laws that dictated the clothes that you could wear based on your profession. And certainly Tolkien knew about sumptuary laws. And I wouldn't, I don't know, we don't see anything like that really, nothing like that is ever called out explicitly in the, the, that we've read so far. But I wouldn't, it seems like a perfectly good explanation of why their hats are that color to me. I, I totally could buy that. We're inventing it. We, we need to know that we're, we are totally making this up. But it fits yes. with the evidence that we have. Yeah, and um, one of the reasons why uh, I'm keeping track of the dwarves yep. is one of the complaints I often hear about the Hobbit, and specifically, is that uh, the dwarves have no real personality. Yes, right. And the first time I ran through the book uh, at a very quick pace, and over a couple of days, because I was enjoying it so much yep. and loving the adventure of it, I thought, well, Thorne stands out in my mind. Yep. And Bobble stands out in my mind for right. reasons more yep. problematic. Yep, because he's fat. Yes. But other than that, no one else did. So when I read it the second time and I took my time reading it, um, Balin yes. comes forward as a, a, a sort of prototypical Sam. Oh, okay. As, as at least the second time I went through it. And I really appreciated Balin. Um, much more on my second read through. Mm. So I figured if I sat down and actually focus on any time one of the dwarves does something or has an attribute given to them, yeah. I can keep a, a little chomp going as to, okay, this is this happens here and this is what this character is doing. That and on this reading, I made a Facebook post uh, a couple days ago that yeah. you saw, Jason. Oh yeah, about uh, glowing. Yeah, glowing. Uh, yeah, Father of Gimli. Yeah. And he just reminds me of my brother, John. Now, my <laughs> hi, <brother> John. John. <laughs> if you're listening, hi, John. 
Yeah, if, if John's listening, <laughs> hello. Uh, and John was much more into the Tolkien stuff when we were kids than I was. Ah. But I've sort of taken over that mantle. I wrestled it. I wrestled him to the ground. <laughs> but John is a, a you know, average height, a little on, a little on the short side, hairy, cantankerous <laughs> person who will argue for the sake of arguing. Sure, yes. And when I was reading uh, the, the second time, uh, he comes up uh, and he's 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 disparaging Bilbo. So Bilbo's fainted. Okay. Uh, when Bilbo comes to the realization that he's going to come face to face with this, you know, possibly not coming home, he has fainted. Yes. They put him away into That's the right. back room and they continue their their dark business. Right. Right. When he comes to when he comes to the room, when that Tookish side of him comes out. Yep. Um. Gloin is going off about how he looks more like a, a grocer than a bull <laughs> Right. And uh, that's when Bilbo, as you said earlier, yeah. sort of says, okay, you have the wrong house. Yeah. But if this was the right house... Right, right. You know, I can do this thing. Yeah. Um, so he sort of goes along with the flow. But the thing that Bilbo mentions in that, in, in that passage is... There was no mark on my door. Yeah. As opposed to going arguing the greater merits of the discussion that Bilbo is having as to whether or not he is worthy of being this bulldog. Yeah. Going gets fixated on the door comment because he knows <laughs> that there was a mark on the door. He saw it. Yeah. And he's going to argue about for the next paragraph about that topic. <laughs> and that's exactly how John has his own. He'll talk something big, you'll make a misstep, or, or you don't have enough information at this one point, yeah. and he'll focus all of his attention on that little point. Right. Now, I have great affection for my brother. Sure. Having said that, he is Gimli's dad. Can we, can we call Glowin a nitpicker? Is that... I, I I did I did put that down. I also okay. put down that uh, uh, Lado, as we see in chapter two, he's he's accredited as being really good at making camp files. Okay. But also throwing down and having fist fights with his brother Oyen. Oh wow. Okay. So yeah. he's scrappy. All right. Yeah. So chapter one has also one of my favorite bits of Tolkien. I don't think it's a coincidence that the very first dialogue in this book is a language joke. Oh, I love this book. <laughs> right? Right? And for those of you that know this book, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's when Gandalf shows up and, and, and Bilbo tells him, good morning. And then they proceed to have this conversation about all the different things that good morning can mean. Do you mean that it's actually a good morning? Or do you mean that, uh, that it's a morning to do good things on? Or, or do you feel good this morning? Or do you feel good this morning? And finally, uh, Bilbo actually uses it as a way to say goodbye. Good morning! You know, like, get out of here. Uh, or maybe in a patronizing way, like, oh, good morning, or whatever, you know. And, yeah. and Tolkien, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine him actually sitting down and saying, okay, I'm going to have a philology joke, the, the beginning of my book. But because we know that he is a professor of languages, and that's what brought him to writing in the first place, it makes perfect sense. That uh, that the first thing that Bilbo and Gandalf should talk about is what do words mean? <laughs> yes, yeah, that's great. And to the film's credit, they did keep this conversation in the film, which is which is wonderful. 
I would have walked out had it not been there. <laughs> oh, you would not. You would have no, watched the whole that. thing. And then That's we would have and then we would have bitched about it later. Yes. <laughs> the giant Facebook post. <laughs> All right. Um Oh, uh, one other comment about color in this yeah, uh, in the whole chapter is, um, again, with toying to this concept of blue yep. uh, with Gandalf's hat, is when Bilbo comes to the realization that Gandalf is who he says, yes. he, he has this line, not the Gandalf who was responsible for so many quiet lads and lassets going off into the blue yeah. for mad adventures. Yeah. Yeah. And I just like, love this idea that he's taken all the time to establish that the hobbits tend to, you know, the gold, brown, and yellow in colorization. Yes, good. And blue, yeah. this, you know, bright primary color, yeah. is used as you know, something negative. Well, something, you know, going wayward. It, yeah, the blue is the blue of the sky, right? And the blue of the sea. Blue is the color of adventure in, in Tolkien, in Middle-earth. Blue... I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm sort of exploring that idea for the first time now because of what we've been talking about. But that's what you do. You go off into the blue. You you go off to sea, or you go into the sky, and and you go off and have adventures. And and that's blue is a very in 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 this book, blue is an adventurous color. So maybe we should we should keep an eye out when when yeah. blue shows up. I like that idea. Yeah, I think we should. Um, one of the things that's also often talked about in Tolkien's books that Middle Earth is a place of low magic. That is, that there's not a lot of actual magic going on in Middle Earth. People can't remember that Gandalf actually casts all that many spells, for example. Um, and we can't find it in the Plato's Handbook, Jason. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and and it's usually that that D and D comparison. It's exactly where we get this because we're used to thinking of of magic in a particular way. And what we don't realize is, or at least as I was rereading the book, exactly how much and how often magic is in this book. The those of us that have seen the film, you remember the Misty Mountains song that the dwarves all get together and sing. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful piece and, and, and it justifiably uh, remembered by fans of the film. It really is a beautiful chanting piece of music. But as the music is playing and as the dwarves are singing in, in the book, they are working a spell. They are working a kind of magic. As they sang, the hobbit felt the love of beautiful things made by hands and by cunning and by magic moving through him, a fierce and a jealous love, the desire of the hearts of dwarves. He, there's a kind of emotion magic going on here so that Bilbo can feel what it's like to be a dwarf. He feels that greed and that desire for precious metals and things uh, coming through. Which, up until that point, he doesn't voice at all. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Then something Tookish woke up inside him and he wished to go and see the great mountains and hear the pine trees and the waterfalls. And that's, that's not the dwarves. That's his adventurous spirit. That's his, that's his blueness, <laughs> if you will, um, coming out. But he can actually see what they're talking about. 
The, he looked out of the window. The stars were out in a dark sky above the trees. He thought of the jewels of the dwarves shining in dark caverns. Suddenly in the wood beyond the water, a flame leapt up, probably somebody lighting a wood fire. And he thought of plundering dragons settling on his quiet hill and kindling it all to flames. He shuddered, and very quickly he was playing Mr. Baggins of Bag End under Hill again. So, and you'll see this again in, at the end of chapter two. There's, there is magic that happens, but it's not called out as magic. Um, and, and it should not surprise us at all that it's linked to music in, in this scene, because this is how Middle-earth was made in Tolkien's Legendarium. That's, it was made through music, and music is one of the most old and powerful versions of magic in Middle-earth. Well, going, going with that, uh, that notion of, of magic and the dwarves, yeah. um, you know, I made the, the Plato's Handbook joke. Yeah. Uh, you know, traditionally in... in fantasy that has come after Tolkien, mm -hmm. dwarves are seen very much in that low magic vein. That's right. Um, but here we have an instance of enchanting. Yeah. And even the language, like, I love that passion that, that yeah. you just read. Yeah. It just puts in mind and it draws, it, it puts the reader in that, you know, in Bilbo's shoes. That's right. Looking up and seeing stalls and then actually seeing you know, diamonds and, and precious metals in the all mm -hmm. um, in a cave somewhere. But also, before that, Thorne is described as sending smoke circles oh, wherever right. he wants them to go. Yes, good, good, yeah. Um, and, and we just had Bilbo, you know, he, he said he was very proud, and he actually gets... You know, he's a little internally mollified at how proud he was that his little smoke ring <laughs> display in front of Gandalf. And yeah. yes, Gandalf is having the more, you know, he's using most of the CGI budget in the right. scene with the smoke rings turning green and floating through, going in directions and then resting over his head. Yeah, the, yeah, for those of you that, you know, he's sending them up over the mantelpiece and sending them <laughs> out the chimney and yes. all these other places that yes. are impossible to do. Yes. So uh, in this read through that, that really, it struck me on, on two fronts. It struck me talking to the, the you know, the inner D&D player in me. Yes. But it also struck me as, you know, he is so commanding that even his smoke rings are listening to him. <laughs> and see... I would have see you're you're hooking it in. You're hooking in his ability to command the smoke rings because of his leadership, his natural position as a leader amongst his people. Whereas mm -hmm. I want to connect it up to fires, because dwarves are you know renowned for their smith work and 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 the heat of the forge. Mm -hmm. And so I want to command. I want to link up his ability to to uh, command the smoke rings to his his blacksmithing sort of work. But mm. but in, in D D it would just be a cantrip. It would just be a zero yeah. level prestidigitation spell or something. Yeah. It'd be something that that, that one player really enjoys doing yeah. all the time yeah. to the chagrin of everyone in the group. <laughs> That's right. That's oh, right. he's at it again. There he is. Look at Bob. Blowing smoke rings. Now I did have one last question. Yes. About chapter one. Yeah. 
Uh, and I don't know if it's if it's uh, you know I haven't read the Samarellian. I haven't really okay. branched off beyond uh, Lord of the Rings proper. But at a certain point, Bilbo is trying to justify his existence, and this is going back to that discussion he had with Coin. Yeah, he mentions werewolves in the lost des- in the last desert. Yes, that's right. Good. What are those? Uh, and do we see them again? No, we do not. Um, the reference of werewolves. Uh, are they are they humans who turn into wolves? Uh, your guess is as good as mine. Now, oh. what we what we do know is is that there are werewolves in the Lord of the Rings in Middle Earth, but they are not shape changers. Werewolves okay. are not men who turn into wolves. Werewolves are demons in the shape of wolves. Okay. Uh, and we actually meet them. We actually fight a bunch of them in, in Lord of the Rings. Uh, and the famous fight on, uh, on um, Caradras, uh, in, on, on the mountain, when they're trying to climb okay. over the mountain, they, they get attacked by wolves. Um, those are actually werewolves, and we know this if uh, by decoding Gandalf's uh, Elvish that he uses in his spells during that encounter. But anyway, uh, so presumably, if we follow that logic, then a wereworm—and when we talk about worm, we mean some kind of dragon, or not a dragon, but a a giant wingless reptile, okay. like so, some kind of giant lizard that's like a snake, like a giant snake that's has no wings and may have legs however it may actually have legs and it it lives on the on the ground and probably buries underground um and there are other creatures referred to as worms uh in in the lord of the rings and in the rest of the legendarium and what this means basically is is a kind of dragon that can't fly so with that idea, a wereworm might be some kind of demon that has taken on worm shape. So, like a leviathan. Uh, maybe a sure. Maybe um, it it might be a it might be a worm that has been possessed by a demon, or it might no. be a demon which has adopted worm shape. Much in the shape, much in the sense that, for example, Ungoliant, the great, the great spider demon, was a demon that adopted spider shape. Okay. Rather than really being a giant spider. Uh, but I'm totally guessing. I mean, what we're, well, we're, I, I shouldn't say guessing. I'm extrapolating based on what little we do know. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if wereworms have ever reappeared anywhere else in the books, um, I don't know where that is. Um. Mm-hmm. Notice, by the way, uh, right near the end, uh, there's a, we have a long exposition scene where Thorin narrates the story of his people to Bilbo. And, and after he's done with that, um, Gandalf has to defend where Gandalf got the map and the key. And he reveals that he got these from Thorin's father, Thrain who was captured and imprisoned in Dol Guldur. And 
And this apparently, this adventure in which Gandalf enters into Dol Guldur, finds Thrain, who's been driven mad by his imprisonment, and is actually left wandering around Dol Guldur, like wandering around the ruins. He's not apparently even kept in a prison cell because he's gone mad. Uh, and from him gets the map and the key. I presume this is the basis for the whole Gandalf subplot in the films, in which... Uh, the side quest that never ends. The side quest, yeah, in which Gandalf goes off to the ruins of Dol Guldur. But in, in the film, the ruins of Dol Guldur are basically an outdoor set. There are some ruins built on top of a little hill. Whereas my impression of Dol Guldur was always some kind of subterranean underground complex, I guess more like a traditional dungeon in the D&D sense, but also perhaps not unlike Moria, though not as big. Um, some kind of fortress which a dwarf could wander around in and, and never get out of. Which yeah. means it had to be big and, and kind of labyrinthine. And for those of you that are keeping track, that is also, by the way, where the last of the dwarvish rings was acquired by Sauron because Thrain had that ring and that's why he's captured by Sauron. Uh, he is interrogated and forced to give up the ring. And that's the last of the dwarvish rings. And that's why Thorin doesn't have it. It's because it was taken from Thrain by Sauron. Yes, if I if I ever, when I was reading this, I, I wrote a little note to myself that says, if I ever want to lower the Rings game, um, I'm going to do it on the last party, the last ex uh, expedition of Thrain. Oh, yeah, that would be a, that would be a great because you could kind of play off a bunch of Moria riffs, mm -hmm. like like Balin's expedition to Moria. But yeah. but you could you could kind of homage that and kind of borrow some ideas from it. But you could you would be doing it actually before before Moria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thrain's expedition so that, that, that you'd open up with you know. With uh, with uh, him getting the map, and you go through, and it's the problem with it is it, it would be a slow grind of of party members dying. Yeah, yeah. It would be a very depressing game. There would be a very high suck factor in that game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, really, I would probably just be like, okay, you guys are all boundals in in uh, Hobbiton. <laughs> and I have to make mail deliveries, and unfortunately, <laughs> someone forgot to pay the postage, so. <laughs> Actually, you have second breakfast because I'll give you extra XP. Yeah, I totally would play that game. Okay. Uh, also, note that we're writing this book in 1937, and a lot of the ideas that will come up in The Lord of the Rings much later don't exist yet. We don't know when this book is written. We don't know that the necromancer is Sauron. We know that he's the necromancer, and that's all that he's described as. And the significance of Sauron and the ring and all that stuff doesn't exist yet. We know that there's a terrible bad enemy called the Necromancer, and we know that he's more dangerous than what anybody in this room needs to face. Thorin talks about how, oh, well, maybe we should go handle that Necromancer guy if he's so dangerous, and Gandalf says, Total no attention to him. Yeah, don't be stupid. Uh, you got you got a dragon to deal with. That's plenty. Uh, a... a Always a great threat, but but not connected with Sauron uh, yet in 1937. Yeah. 
I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my false reading, enjoyed the, the necromancial subplot that we only get <laughs> yeah. hints That's right. of what's going on. That's and there's there's something to be said for allowing the audience to fill in those missing gaps. Yeah, one of the beautiful parts about Tolkien is that there's things going on off the stage that you don't see. People move when you're not looking at them, which is not only the hallmark of a great story, of a great of a great world, but also I think shows a lot of authorial confidence. You know, one of the things that we get with things like like Martin's Game of Thrones series or or um the Sword of Shannara series or or the interminable Wheel of Time series, is that the the author feels a need to show us everything that's happening to everyone all the time. And and Tolkien, I think wonderfully, is not he doesn't feel tied to that. Like he's he's perfectly happy to not tell you what happens. Where where is Gandalf every minute of the day? Uh and maybe he'll get to it later. Maybe he'll tell another story that fills in that gap. But maybe he won't, because you know he's got a million stories to tell, and there's just not enough time for all of them. Yeah, because Tolkien only hears half of what is said about Gandalf. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He only hears it, and he has a quarter of it. That's right. That's right. All right. So uh, does that wrap up our discussion of Chapter One? I think so. I mean, we could talk about this book forever, but we have to stop someplace. So we'll stop now. And besides that, I'll give some some. I really want to encourage anybody listening. You know, share your thoughts. Uh, if there's a favorite bit or a favorite line or a favorite moment in these books as we read, please, please tell us. We would, we really want you to participate. That's one of the beautiful things about this podcast is hopefully is that we can get a lot of people kind of traveling with us. Yes. We, we've got a, our, our Facebook page and we'll have a YouTube channel and we have ways for you guys to all interface with us. Yeah, well, you know... I mentioned in the beginning uh, my personal connection to to Tolkien, um, and you discussed your history with, with yeah. the books. Um, you know, it's a very personal story, yeah. and so the things that speak to us on a particular reading, That's right. they differ from reading to reading, um, but they also differ from person to person. That's right, that's right. And Tolkien knew this and uh, addressed it specifically. Um, uh, for those of you who are aspiring writers out there, and many readers of Tolkien are aspiring writers for obviously good reasons, but uh, he wrote a, a wonderful essay. Uh, I believe it's called Leaves of... Was it? No, 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 now I'm getting it confused. Um, it's on, uh, on fairy stories? On fairy stories, yes. Thank you, God. Uh, and, and, and on fairy stories, he talks about... Uh, why why fiction is better than plays or film and he was talking about Tolkien didn't like Shakespeare um he didn't like Shakespeare very much he said Shakespeare would have been an, a passable novelist but he was a terrible playwright uh which is upset about those trees well I, I I think it's great uh, because it, it helps to show that that it's okay to disagree between great writers. Like people that are great, you know, can have differing opinions. But anyway, one of the things that he points out is, is that when you're reading a book and you read about a, a, a rock or a, a stream or a tree that you, 
the memories that you bring to that rock or that stream or that tree are memories of that particular rock, like that big rock that used to be in your backyard, you know, or that, that tree that you used to climb when you were a kid, or that stream that was within walking distance of your house growing up. And, and, and in many senses, when you read it, it's that stream. Like, it may say that the stream is set in, in the Shire, but when you think of the stream, you think of that stream that you walked to as a child. But as soon as you take it out of the book, and as soon as you put it onto a stage or onto a screen, well, now it's Peter Jackson's stream. Yeah. And it's Peter Jackson's rock, and it's Peter Jackson's tree. And, and because you visually see it, it, that visual impression overrides what you have yourself previously brought to the book. This is exactly what we were talking about a few minutes ago, about how we can't think of Thorin without thinking of the guy that played Thorin in the movie. Because his, the, the visual impressions, as human beings, were just were wired to, to override all other impressions with visual impressions. If you see something, that becomes more important than anything else that you feel or have remembered about it. And it, it's kind of messed up when you think about it. It's, it, it sh we shouldn't work that way. But that's evolution for you. You know, that's the survival instinct. And, and so this is a long di digression, but my point is, is that exactly all of you out there in the audience and, and you, you read this book and there's some individual part of it that just really grabs you and there's a line or a moment or a scene or a character or a, a conflict or s some sort of recurring theme in it that, you know, just that you really understand because of your own personal experience. Well, please share that with us because we would love to hear it, frankly. And one of the things that we'd like to do on Tolkien's Road is bring in guests so that you don't just listen to the two of us talk all the time. And and so... Two guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we're, not, we're not claiming to be authorities of this. No, uh, no, no. We are... We're fighting our souls that we, we all we all taking from the annotated works. Yeah. Um... And and want to see people who thoroughly love the subject matter and want to share that love yeah. with as many people as we, we we can speak with. Yeah. So the more people who join our little course, who join our our, our traveling show, yeah. uh, the better this podcast is going to be. Ab absolutely, I could not agree more. I could not agree more. So so please comment and and get involved in the conversation. That then that helps tell us who we should ask to join us. For, for our future sessions. Okay, so would you like to recap chapter two since you did the first oh, one? Oh, yes. Um, so chapter two starts Thursday morning. Thursday morning. For whatever reason, I love the fact that we get the days that all of this this happens, at least in the beginning. Yeah, no, but but notice that it's not the following Thursday. Uh, or, or is it? Is it the following? Like, is it the very next day? Like the... Oh, yeah, yeah you're he right. He goes yeah. to sleep, and he wakes that's up, right. and his house is empty. That's right, that's right. Yes, you're right, you're right. Go on. And he, he's recalling, uh, <laughs> you know, he even has to sit there and do the dishes. <laughs> yeah. Now, that scene, um, I know I just said I'm going to summarize, and now I'm talking about a little instance of the book. <laughs> but that scene speaks to me now, getting back to our conversation about uh, taking personal things, yes. because I am the one responsible in this house for doing the dishes. Oh, wow. Nice. So I sit there, you know, two or three times a day doing dishes, mainly because I don't, I'm not the one cooking. Yeah. Um, and and I want to help out as much as I can. Uh, but so him having to clean up 
after this giant meal just reminded me of Thanksgiving and cleaning up after our friends Jeremiah and Shannon came over and cooked us a giant feast. Now, I just want to say that at this point, like every every wife and girlfriend in the audience is thinking, man, I wish my guy did that. <laughs> so go you. Congratulations, James. You're, you're our man to be emulated. You are a role model. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's funny. Um, but, uh, so Thursday morning, he wakes up and everyone has left. They've already cooked themselves breakfast. So the chapter, chapter one ends with everyone putting their oils for breakfast. (laughs) Right. Uh, especially Thorne. He's very particular that he (laughs) wants fried eggs, not poach. He wants ham with six eggs. I just want to reach through the book and smack him, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It was was extremely, it was like, I want it like this, at this temperature, and you should use the skillet. I just want things how I want them. Yeah. He's one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And and the best part is, is, so he takes everyone's order at the end, he goes to bed, and he sleeps in, um, and I thought that was very humanizing that after this long night yeah. of uh, hearing the song and hearing uh, throwing uh, mumble, you know, the, the voice, the, the chorus again. Yeah. And he drifts to sleep that he sleeps in. Yeah. He wakes up with the start. It's up jump Bilbo is the, the voice, right. you know, is the, is the uh, independent clause that kicks us off <laughs> nice. of, of the book of chapter two. And he has to the dishes he yeah. does the dishes he forgets all about you know he he's letting go he's getting back to his hobbit way so yeah, he's just he done is. his cleaning he's getting back to his hobbit roots um that was last night's little misadventure maybe that'll be the end of it and he he not only has breakfast but he after he cleans up the whole house he has second breakfast oh right and yes during second breakfast that's when gandalf comes in and goes why are you still here <laughs> yeah haven't you cleaned up the mantle place? And Bilbo gets offended, going, "Yes, I've cleaned up my whole house." Yeah. And and Gandalf reaches over, takes from the mantle piece uh, a piece of paper, and now he's got to be at the Green Dragon Inn, which is about a mile away in fifteen minutes. Yeah. So he runs out the door, and he doesn't have anything. Yeah. He doesn't have a walking stick. He doesn't have his handkerchief. He doesn't even have his hat. Runs out of the door. And gets there just in time, and Balin's standing there. Right. Uh, now, Balin is their lookout man. Okay. He's described later in the chapter as always their lookout man. Ah, all right, good. And this is the first instance of him looking out for Bilbo. And he joins the party. It's not the scene in the movie where people are taking bets. Um, right. But Bilbo does stomp everyone. Goes, oh, no, I forgot my hat. I forgot this and that. And... Uh, Dwaylin gives him his green hood. Okay. From there, Gandalf joins the party. Uh, he's got he's got a couple of handkerchiefs. He's got some some provisions from Bag End, but not everything. So you know, Bilbo's gonna have to rub it out without you know sorting the Mandy's. Sure. And they go off, and the weather is really nice at the beginning. And this is one of cha- uh, Tolkien's um, dangerous chapters in this book. So the way the book is sort of structured, at least from my reading of it, is those those one chapter to breathe, a breathing room, and then the other chapter he's just tightening the screws on the action. Oh, interesting. So it sort of goes up and down. Yeah, it's yeah, you know, right. after this we get to the lonely house. You know, yeah, the, the, yeah, right. 
Right, yeah. And then so forth and so on. There's always these little breathing areas. Yeah. Uh, that we get to relax in. And I don't think it's a one-for-one ratio. Okay. But it does have certain movements like that. And this is this is definitely the, okay, we're going we're gonna to tighten up the action. Uh, the weather starts getting dreary. Uh, they enter the lone land. And as they're, they're going, they run afoul of three trolls. Uh, William, Bolt, and Tom. And Bilbo is sent off to inspect the file. A little Turkish part of him wakes up, and he tries to steal from the, uh, from, I believe, William. Okay. Uh, William's uh, pocket has a pulse that talks. Yeah, yeah, we'll get that. We'll get to that. And hilarity ensues when the... Trolls kidnap or systematically take down each dwarf that comes out and then argues about how they're going to kill them and how they're going to eat them. Gandalf shows up. He... Oh, that's my dog. Carry on. <laughs> it sounded like a dial wolf. No, no, no. She, she saw a cat outside. That's all it takes. Oh, okay. Think it's that way, too. Um... Gandalf shows up, he he throws his voice and he adopts the speaking panels of the other trolls who are all speaking what uh a version of Cockney? Uh I'll look that up. It's a lower class accent, certainly. Go on. Yeah. And uh it ends with the three trolls turning the stone. Thorin is very put out because they were gonna kill him first, and he wants to know where Gandalf's been all this time. And Gandalf says, I was away looking ahead. And yeah. Thorin asks, well, what brought you back looking behind? <laughs> and he does not seem satisfied with that answer. At the end, he is mollified when Gandalf does give him a little exposition that he went ahead and he met some, some friendly folk who told him about the trolls and then he came back. Right. right. And says, then the chapter ends with a thank you. That I can only assume was a begrudging thank you. <laughs> right. Um. Gandalf's involvement in in saving everyone is not immediate at first. Um, we know that there's a voice talking, but it's not clear that it's Gandalf until he steps out from cover and the sun has already turned the trolls to stone. Uh, we get lines like, "Who shall we sit on first? said the voice. So we don't we don't know quite what's going on uh, until. It's all over. Uh, most everyone agrees that this is one of the best chapters in the book. It's it's a beautifully self-contained adventure story. Uh, you don't need to know a whole lot else about the story to appreciate it. It's got humor and tension. Uh and a little bit of magic, and some bad guys that maybe aren't all that bad. I mean, one of the trolls actually suggests letting the poor little burrow hobbit go. Uh, and and uh, it's uh, it was the favorite of Tolkien's children at different stages. Different, different members of the family thought it was the best at different points uh, in their lives. 
You already mentioned the talking purse. This is another example of the the degree to which magic is present in Middle Earth that people don't we don't think about because we haven't reread it. Uh, the trolls trolls purses are the mischief, and this was no exception. Air, who are you? It squeaked as it left the pocket. That when you when you try to steal someone's purse, if you're not the designated owner, it will talk back about you. <laughs> and the troll had this, and no one seems to think this is especially unusual. That is, afterwards, no one's... Bilbo doesn't try to say, hey, the purse could talk, and people laugh at him or anything. Um, it reminds yeah. me very much of a similar it's moment. What's that? It's almost a non-event. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So for us, it's a big deal, right? It's unusual. Yeah, it's... It's, it's, it's a, a level of fun and color to the, to the wall. But for everyone in the story, it's like, of course, tall points. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It reminds me of this wonderful bit in um, the beginning of Lord of the Rings when Frodo and Sam are, are walking along and they get spied upon by a fox who thinks to itself about them. Oh, hobbits wandering around after dark. Well, wonders never cease. They never meet this fox. The fox never talks to them. It's just a thinking fox, apparently. And, and it's another example of the degree of which magic is so present in Middle-earth, but, but because it's not fireballs and invisibility spells, we, we don't think of it. Yeah. Um, there was a, there was a, a great line that I very much enjoyed reading this, this one time, uh, which, which goes, Bilbo knew it. He had read of a good many things <laughs> he had never seen or done. Yes. Now you, why, why this line? Well, my, my girlfriend, Misty, is very active, yes. and she likes doing things. Yes. And whenever there's an opportunity to do something, yes. even remotely adventurous, which invariably winds up being dangerous and scales you know, both of us half to death, yes. but we'll do it. It always just puts me in mind that, you know, <laughs> for the most part, I very much relate to Bilbo. <laughs> yeah. We're more... Uh vicarious doers than actual doers. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But yeah. with 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 Misty, that is not the case. That is not the case. So I, I am like, yes, I will go on a twenty-five mile bike ride to the beach. Why not? <laughs> right, right. Well, I can regret it on mile twenty-three. Yeah. Well you better get her something blue. I think that's the moral yeah. of this uh, <laughs> tonight's episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um the Green Dragon Inn is a wonderful institution. Uh, it's come up in many role-playing games over the years. There was a classic illustration in the DM's Guide, the first edition DM's Guide, uh, that was set outside of the, the Green Dragon Inn. Uh, the Green Dragon is a preoccupation of Tolkien. It comes from one of his very first, earliest linguistic memories when he, he was a child. And he wrote, uh, he's about seven years old, and he wrote a story about a dragon. Uh, he says later that he could not remember anything about this story, except that after he wrote it, his mother pointed out to him that you could not say a green great dragon. You had to say a great green dragon. And he doesn't know why this is. And, and when he was giving this interview many years later, or writing in one of his letters, he said, I still don't know why this is. Uh, but it's true. 
this is the sort of puzzle that that would bother Tolkien. Uh, I'm I'm not a philologist, but my hunch is the reason why you can say a great green dragon and not a green great dragon is because green dragons are a thing, and so that thing can be great. But great yeah. dragons are not a thing, and so you can't have a great dragon uh, that's green. You can only have a green dragon that's also great. Yes, well, I, I would I would move it uh, from from approaching that. It's an yeah. interesting question. <laughs> And it's definitely a question I would probably heal in, in the English lab, especially with the ESL students. Yes. Um, who are trying to understand this needlessly complicated language that we have called English. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but my, my taking would be that you, you go from something big and you, the green is a, a, a minor detail in comparison to the size of the greatness. Well, that, but that's just my thinking. You might be right. You might be I'm right. not even sure if that would be a correct way to assume. Right, right. For the most part, I think I think the answer that I would, if a student will not approach me with that, would be, it's just the way it is. Which is <laughs> yeah. not an acceptable, you know, acceptable answer by anyone's imagination. Well, well, in English, we call that an idiom. It's just an idiom. This is just It's just how it's done. And the answer yeah. is, it's just English. This is just how you do it in English. And and uh, it, you're right, it is a big challenge for ESL students. In this chapter, we pass a month in a sentence. Uh, we it's, it's soon the end of May, almost June. Another good example of, I think, a, a confident author who does not feel obliged to record every minute of every day. And... One of the things that that Tolkien's fiction had also did in the world of medievalisms and the world of medieval study was help us to understand how long and how difficult daily travel in the pre-industrial era really was. Uh, that you can you can spend a month uh, or forty days or something traveling a relatively short distance towards your goal. It seems so strange to us in the modern era, but it was so common in in pre-industrial societies that it was not even worthy of further comment. Oh, a month has gone by. And then the real story happens. Yeah. We live in a time where stories all have to be compressed into as short a time period as possible for some obligation to dramatic unity. You know, the, the Aristotelian uh, uh, unities of time, place, and action. Uh, Tolkien doesn't give a damn about unity of time or, or place or action. It's, it's quite refreshing. Um, yeah. And to be reminded that you don't have to sit down and, and map out every minute of an eventual story. And of course, this this scene when they meet the trolls will show up again in Fellowship of the Ring, and this is a source of some discrepancy because uh, the the travel times and uh, and the, la the the landscape, the geography that the uh, dwarves and Bilbo traverse in this book does not entirely fit. It's in some ways irreconcilable to the, the same material, the same journey that's repeated by Frodo and Sam and 
Mary Pippin and Aragorn Strider in, in Fellowship. Uh, Tolkien would come back and revise uh, this chapter in many small ways, trying to bring it more into line with the events of Fellowship of the Ring. For example, um, uh, there's a, a sentence uh, early on. Um, let me see if I can find it. Um, then they came to lands where people spoke strangely and sang songs Bilbo had never heard before. Well, originally that line read, there was a good deal of wide, respectable country to pass through, inhabited by decent, respectable folk, men or hobbits or elves or whatnot, with good roads and inn or two, and every now and then a dwarf or a tinker or a farmer ambling by on business. But after a time, they came to places where people spoke strangely and sang songs Bilbo had never heard before. The, by the time that we got to the Fellowship of the Ring, Tolkien's understanding of this area was that it was completely abandoned that nobody lived in this land anymore. Um, you get the, the forgotten inn, the forsaken inn, excuse me, and then, and then nothing. Uh, and even around the forsaken inn, it's not called the forsaken inn for no reason. It's called the forsaken inn because almost nobody lives there in that area. Uh, so he had to come back and he had to, to change the book. He had to re he had to edit it and cut out, uh, a lot of these signs of habitation to try to capture the abandonment of the, the lone lands. And even the phrase, the lone lands, which you mentioned in your summary, the, the phrase lone lands nowhere appears in the original edition of The Hobbit. It was added in the in addition, in changes, editorial changes, after that phrase was introduced in Fellowship. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, even the the river, the, excuse me, the the bridge that they cross, the bridge that they cross, the description of it is changed to fit the description of the last bridge uh, that uh, that Strider and and the hobbits cross in uh, in Fellowship. Uh, you mentioned the trolls. Uh, yes, uh, William Bolt and Tom. William Bert and Tom. And and uh, uh, I cannot read this chapter without seeing my dad. Oh, really? Why? Oh, he, his name is Bolt. Oh, wow. Okay, great. Um, so, you know, we're reading about a little hobbit going on an adventure, and he encounters a very big person named Bolt. <laughs> yeah. For me, and, and, and this, this chapter is still written with that childish, you know, that patronizing tone that Tolkien despised. Yes. But that I quite love. Because uh, it does put me in the mind of a child while reading this little adventure story, especially in this chapter. Mutton yesterday, mutton today, and blimey if it don't look like mutton again tomorrow, said one of the trolls. Never a blinking bit of man flesh have we had for long enough, said a second. What the hell William was a thinking of to bring us into these parts at all beats me. And the drink running short, what's more? So this is this is the accent you were talking about um mm -hmm. it's i don't know if it's cockney or not but it's certainly lower class um yeah the book describes it as tolkien describes it as not drawing room fashion at all at all <laughs> yes i love that bit <laughs> not drawing room fashion not drawing room fashion but the trolls are very different than the trolls that we see in lord of the rings you know when we hear like uh, they have a cave troll. But yeah, boring. I, I have to always think of Sean Bean. You know, they have a cave troll. Uh, 
or the trolls that we see uh, in war uh, in, in Lord of the Rings, these trolls seem relatively sophisticated. I mean, compared compared to those trolls. Yes. They speak and they have they, they speak the language that everyone else is speaking, which is weird. And Tolkien will make a big deal about about how orcs can't really communicate very well. They, their, their language doesn't work. It doesn't do what language is supposed to do. In fact, um, well, we'll get more to this later, but they, uh, they cook and they have, like one of the dwarves has a key that fits their troll hole. So yes. apparently they, they must have locks. They must build locks. They're, they're, they are not just unthinking, brutish monsters. They just happen to be big, mean, sort of giants. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, you, know, you mentioned the, the, the hold. Uh, yeah. The thing that, that stood out for me this time was the, the clothes. Yes. They, like, they took the time to, un, you know, they, they had the victims and took the time to undress them to hang out these clothes yeah. in a little safe space. And I'm thinking, why? <laughs> yeah, right. Because um, by a humorous image of a giant troll bending over a little human or, you know, a little dwarf and taking off his clothes. And then like, hmm, I'm going to hang this up next to this other dress I have. <laughs> yeah. That's complimentary colors. <laughs> Poor little blighter, said William. He had already had as much supper as he could hold. Also, he had had lots of beer. Poor little blighter. Let him go. And, uh, you know, you feel sorry for the poor trolls a little bit. Uh, This is something that Tolkien's kids mentioned later. They actually felt kind of sorry for the trolls that they got turned to stone. Well, not just that. One of them loses an eye. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. There's a fight. And... You know, this is this is the sort of chapter that poses a real challenge when you want to make a movie out of this because the dwarves do not put up a very good demonstration for themselves in in this fight. They they very stupidly uh, approach the fire one person at a time, and it's not until Thorin, who's the very last one at the very end, that he starts to be a little suspicious. And then they all get captured. Uh, and they're helpless. And, and, well, um, yeah, go ahead. To, to give out my shout-out to the dwarves of this chapter. Sure, yeah, good. Um, I, I, I would like to comment uh, that Dwalin, uh, Dwalin is the one who gives the hood to Bilbo. Okay. Which gives us the iconography of the animated film, right? Which is Bilbo and the Green Hood. Yes, that's right. Yes, good. Um, so I want to give a special shout out to that. Uh, also, Balin is the first one to investigate after Bilbo. Ah. And he's the first one captured. Right. Um, also, in addition to Thorin actually doing the damage, it is said that Biffle and Bomble fought like mad against the troll. That's right. I remember reading that. Like, Bomber was apparently quite a fighter. Yeah. Not just the object of various fat jokes. Yes. So I thought, you know, I gave him a little stall in my notes. <laughs> nice. 
Uh, but yes, Thorne's the one who does, who, who does, who really has the action and, and takes out, almost takes out two of them, and is then, you know, caught on the whales by the foal. Uh, so let's draw this chapter while very well constructed. Yeah. You know, not to make the puns, but doesn't have much meat on his bones in terms of what we can chew over for councils and whatnot. Except the resolution of the conflict. Okay. And I think we have to sort of draw a line to what the mo- the movie does. Okay. T- remind me, because it's been a while since I've looked at it. So in the movie, how it happens is they're roasting the dwarves over an open spit. Yeah. And Bilbo is rolling charisma checks to distract them <laughs> long enough so that Gandalf can get in position so that Gandalf hits his staff against a rock and the rock shows the, su- the sunlight. Ah. So it's Bilbo gnawing up screen time. Yeah. As opposed to how it's resolved here, which is Bilbo's moment of triumph is yeah. that he failed his thievery check. <laughs> yeah. Bill was able to get the key out of the troll's pocket. Yeah. So, as filmmakers, they wanted to shift the heroism of the story onto Bilbo. They wanted mm-hmm. to make him uh, more heroic and to show his growth into a hero uh, over the course of that film. And and so they de-emphasized Gandalf and put Bilbo on stage more. Um, and they also give the dwarves, the dwarves put up a lot more of a fight, as I remember. Yeah, it was more of an action sequence. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, they, they play the Misty Mountain theme song. Right, right. But the thing I, I thought was interesting about how Gandalf went about it. Yeah. Because he could have went in there and did lightning bolts and, you know, <laughs> there, there could have been a, a, a more flashier resolution to this conflict. But what he does is he pawns the trolls' weakness, their, their desire to bickle yes. against them. Yes. Yeah. And he 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 doesn't outpower them. He just outsmarts them by using their own sort of shortcoming, their own yeah. flaws, to eat up enough screen time that the sun comes out. There, there are a couple of really strong influences on this particular um, scene. One of them is the Brave Little Tailor story, which is an old fairy story about a guy who uh, tricks two giants into fighting each other by throwing a rock at one of the giants and making him think the other giant threw it. And they end up beating up on each other enough that, that... the hero can steal the thing that he's come to steal. There's also a, a children's story, a British children's story called Pusscat Mew. That sounds like a, a weird name to us, but it's, uh, it's about a, a uh, we assume it's about a cat. It's about a cat. And the, the, but the, the cat is like a sidekick character to a, a guy in the story whose name is Joe. And uh, 
and Joe is helped out by Puss Cat Mew uh, throughout the story. But Joe has a, Joe finds over the course of the story, he finds a glove that makes him invisible, and uh, and in the story he starts punching the giants, the the ogres, um, and they they can't see who's punching them, and they think that the other the other ogre has been doing the punching, and they and they start fighting over each other. Um, Tolkien was greatly a, had a fought, very fond memory of Puskat Mew and mentions it in various letters and, and talks about having read the story when he was young as a child. And, uh, and I don't think it should surprise us. Um, and when I talk about Tolkien's influences, this is not meant in any way to disparage the, uh, the, the author. We, I'm not trying to say that Tolkien copied another writer. I think that this idea, we need to get over this idea that every great author invents everything himself. Um, it's really more about execution, and it's about language sometimes, much more than plot. Um, mm -hmm. the, the wonderful thing about, about the roast mutton chapter is the way, that, they, oh, the way that, the, that the trolls talk. It makes you want to read it out loud. It makes you want to, to read that dialect. Mm -hmm. And you hear the voices talking, and, it, and, and you're trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, who's talking? And all, all, Tolkien doesn't tell you. He just says, a voice said, or the voice that sounded like William. And you have to figure it out for yourself, and it becomes a sort of puzzle. And, and we should not be surprised that Tolkien remembered stories that he read about little heroes fighting off stupid giants. Uh, of which there were a great many such stories, and he adapted them to fit the story that he was telling right there at, at the moment. Let's see, where else? Uh, oh, and at the end of this, uh, after they they find um, the troll horde, this mm -hmm. is a... We're, this, maybe we should call this our D&D &D episode because we keep talking about D&D. &D. This, this may be the first wandering monster encounter in literature. I mean... You're, you're, you know, the DM rolls on his dice, DM rolls dice, uh, finds some trolls, and then they fight the trolls, and then they get to loot the, the troll's lair. And, and when they're in the troll's lair, they get treasure. Uh, they get a bunch of gold, and they find two swords and, the, and sting, which will be very important in the rest of this story. And uh, very important period. Very important, yeah, you're right. Very important period. Uh, I was extraordinarily upset with the idea that Frodo was leaving it behind before they got to Mortal. Oh, okay. yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, that's why Sam is the greatest person on the planet. Yeah, well, Sam is smart enough and thinks that maybe we should hold on to that thing. Uh, and, but this is also where we find uh, Glamdring, right, and Orchrist, uh, yep. which at this point, are just swords, but later will become swords forged by the smiths of Gondolin, and they'll have a long First Age history. But that that conception isn't present yet uh, in the book. But yeah, a, we just we just get the idea that those runes on them yeah. and those are mystery, and, and yeah. it's something that Gandalf doesn't know. That's right. That's right. Which is so refreshing because. You know, it, especially in the Jackson movies, Gandalf always knows such and such. Yeah, like he's 
hold of the exposition guy. Yeah, and one, then, yeah. Then we have this mystery. Yeah, one of the cha- except when they need Frodo to do it instead. Um, yeah. When we get to the the doors of Moria, we'll have this conversation again. But so uh, they've they've looted the dungeon, the the trolls' lair, and then after that, they brought up their ponies and carried away the pots of gold and buried them very secretly, not far from the track by the river, putting a great many spells over them, just in case they ever had the chance to come back and recover them. Okay, it says they. So, I mean, the dwarves did this. It wasn't Gandalf putting magic spells over the treasure. It was the dwarves putting spells on the treasure. And when you think about it, what spells would dwarves know? Dwarves with no spells about how to keep people from stealing their treasure. <laughs> That's what. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so s- another example of, mm-hmm. of magic in Middle-earth popping up in unexpected places. Notice it's not even one spell. A great many spells over them. Like maybe every dwarf had like his own favorite treasure guarding spell or something. Yeah, I, I like to think that each person came up, <laughs> except for Thorn. Because, you know, that's beneath Thorne. Oh, right, right. Thorne right. didn't do that. Thorne said, okay, Balin, you organize this whole thing. <laughs> nice. And Balin had to sit there and go, okay, okay, Gloin, did you did you do your cantankerous spell yeah. that screams at people? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, good. Check. <laughs> good. Yeah. Uh, we have one last little treat, uh, since we're talking about trolls and Tolkien. Tolkien wrote a poem, a song, really, called The Root of the Boot, uh, which actually appears uh, in Lord of the Rings as well. And uh, he he sang this song back in uh, the 1950s, and it was recorded. And thanks to the beauty of uh, the digital age, we still have that recording. And so we're going to listen to J.R.R. Tolkien sing a poem about trolls. Here we go. Standing up with his hands behind his back as if he was at school, he began to sing to an old tune. <coughs> a troll sat alone on his seat of stone and munched and mumbled a bare old bone. For many a year he nodded near for me, twas hard to come by, some by, gone by. In a cave in the hills he dwelt alone, and me twas hard to come by. Up came John with his big boots on, says he could troll play what is yarn. But it looks like the shin of an Uncle Jim, as should be a line in graveyard, caveyard, paveyard. This many a year has Jim been gone. And I thought he were lying in graveyard. My lad said, troll, this bone I stole. But what be bones that lie in a hole? Thine uncle was dead as a lump of lead, afore I found his carcass. Arky, marky, he can spare a bone for a poor old troll. He's got no use for his carcass. Said John, I don't see what the likes of thee. With an axe in leaves, go make him free. With a leg of the shin of my father's skin, so hand the old bone over, rover, trover. Though daddy be belongs to he, so hand the old bone over. For a couple of pins, as a troll and grins, I'll eat thee too and gnaw thy shins. 
A bit of fresh meat will go down sweet. There'll be a nice change in the uncle. Sunkle, drunkle, I'm tired of knowing old bones and skins. There'll be a nice change in the uncle. But just as he thought his dinner was got, he found his hands had hold of naught. Before he could mind, John slipped behind and gave him the boot to land him. Warn him, darn him, a bump of the boot to the seat, John thought, would be the way to land him. But harder than stone is a flesh and bone of a troll that sits in the hills alone. As well as set your boot to the mountain's root, for the seat of a troll don't feel it, teal it, peel it. Old troll laughed, but John did groan, for his poor toes did feel it. John's leg is gained since before we came, and his boots, his foot, his lasting lame. But Troll does care, and he's still there, for the bony bones of its owner, donor, boner. Troll's old seat is still the same, for the bony bones of its owner. <laughs> okay. You still there? Well, special guests on this episode. That's none right. Than himself. That's right, the man himself. Yeah. All right. Well, um, so I'm going over my my last few notes, uh, and getting to this idea that the trolls are a little different. Uh, I want to call special attention out to Bill. Okay. Um, of all the trolls, like of, of all the trolls, he's going alternatively by Bill or William. Yeah. Depending on who, you know, depending on the time of day. But he also has a last name. Does he? His, his last name is Huggins. Really? And Bulk says, and I won't take that from you, Bill Huggins. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, I'm guessing the trolls have some sort of tax system. <laughs> and they had to differentiate between the various bills. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I didn't even catch that he had a last name. That's great. Is there anything um anything else that's let's see. Um no, I don't I don't have anything else in my uh in my section here, but um but it I, is a very short chapter compared to the previous one. Yeah, it is. And also, but you know, so we talked a lot about the origins of the book and the chapter and and so on. So uh, I'm not surprised that we don't have as much to say about this one because we went on quite long about the first chapter, um, but it's a it's a wonderful uh, it's it's a wonderful sh and that's part of the reason why I expect that the the children like it so much is because it is short, and it's got uh, a very clear uh, action going on in it, and it's uh, it's wrapped up in a funny surprising way. Oh, and and there is one last thing that we should talk about, and that is the idea of the eucatastrophe, um, which is. Uh, a particular characteristic of Tolkien's work, and this is the first one of them that we see. So why don't you uh, expound on that? Well, the eucatastrophe is a Tolkien, I believe Tolkien invented the word, and what he means by it is the opposite of a catastrophe. It is a sudden, unexpected, good turn of events. Um, instead of things suddenly turning awful, things suddenly turn marvelous. And, and today, audiences have a hard time with a turn of events like this. They find 
they find a eucatastrophe to be um, unbelievable or you have to foreshadow it better. And it hasn't been foreshadowed and so we don't, you know, we don't buy it uh, dramatically. But, but to Tolkien, the entire history of the earth is a eucatastrophe. Uh, to Tolkien, mankind is fallen, and and men men are basically sinners, and we're we try to do good, but we always end up being not as good as we want to be, and we we're weak, and we've done bad things. But there's going to come a time when. Christ will come again and and everything will be made suddenly right. And no matter how long and awful human history will be, it will suddenly and unstoppably uh, all be made good in the end. And and that this this is Tolkien's defense of the tactic of using this as a writing mechanism. He's not inventing this tactic. He's just He's named it. He's named it, and he, he's replicating it. He's borrowing it from what he perceives as the actual world that we live in. His defense would be, but this is what the world is like. Uh, and it is, it, you know, to, to dissect it in, in light of this chapter, it yeah. is bullshit a little bit by the, by the trolls themselves saying, we can't be out here, you know, in break of day. Exactly. Exactly. A good point. I'm glad you brought this up. Because a eucatastrophe does need to be believable. It has to make sense with the evidence you have seen before. But it also cannot be over-foreshadowed. It has mm -hmm. to be a surprise, or else it's not a eucatastrophe. It's, yeah. it's, it's expected. And there's plenty of uh, literature that has the cavalry arriving suddenly over the over the hill. It's just that we tend to disparage those stories as we we tend to suggest that they're not properly dramatized. But but to Tolkien, that's exactly what what this is. It's the cavalry. Except in this case, the cavalry is not literal cavalry. It's the sun. Yeah, it's it's not as if the trolls stopped and said, "Okay, we're out here by this time, a quarter past this, then we're going to turn the stone." And yeah, and you never get remind. Yeah, exactly. And and although he is very careful to tell you that a bunch of time had passed, he does this three times as Gandalf keeps them arguing and fighting. He he always keeps you. Um, he always tells you that a lot of time has passed. He never tells you how much time, and he never hints that the sun is about to come up. Yeah. Uh, and. and it, so that when it happens, it's a complete surprise. This is a, we're going to see this tactic, this writing strategy, again and again in Tolkien's work. I, I personally believe it might be the, the dis, that and the, the language jokes, the, his preoccupation with philology and with the, the meaning of words and phrases might be the distinguishing characteristics of Tolkien's writing. Uh, and and this is our first one. This is our yes. first one. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I think we've about talked it up. Uh, we should make a few closing notes. We have a Facebook thread. 
uh, Facebook page, Tolkien's Road Podcast, uh, on, on Facebook. We also are working up a YouTube page where you'll be able to find uh, our, our episodes as well. Uh, and we want to encourage you to look us up and to, uh, to make comments. We'll get a Twitter uh, worked up as well. If you, for some of you, would rather use Twitter if you, you love 140 character limits. And, and you can let us know what you think about, about the reading, your own experience with Tolkien. What's your, what's your favorite scene uh, in the books so far? Um, or have we not reached it yet? Uh, if you have questions or comments, by all means, give those to us. Uh, if you want to congratulate James and his willingness to do house chores, uh, which I, I have no end of admiration for, because I have no choice, because I live alone. So I, I do all the dishwashing and cleaning the dishes, but not because I want to, but because I have to. Uh, so please uh, chime in, <laughs> chime in and, and tell us your thoughts and comments. Yes, please. All right. Well, we're about done, so I'm going to wrap it up. And remember, it's uh, it's always a danger. It's always how is the phrase going? I'm going to I'm going to mess it up. It's it's a dangerous thing going out your door. That's it. That's that's our that's my line. Uh, it's a dangerous thing going out your door. And we'll see you next week on Tolkien's Road. Okay. Now I don't know if this worked because I'm staring at my recording and I think it worked, but it was giving me very strange visual. It was giving me a very strange screen ever since I started to, sh to play Tolkien. So let me rewind. Okay. Let me rewind it a little bit and play it. All right. can't even tell if it's still recording or not. It's, I just keep getting the, the spinning circle of death. Oh, no. Thank you.